Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, I do pray uh, that you would work and make this time effective, that we would have ears to hear, that you would instruct us and teach us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things that we would be both warned and encouraged, that we would be both startled and relieved, that we would be both pricked and healed uh, by your work, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, this, it's been a distracting week for all of us, I'm sure. Um, we've, we've had different things to be doing, and um, for those of us who are new to Florida, we've had the opportunity to learn some new things. I want to report to Jeff that I only sheared off one wingnut and all of that. Um, I want to take a moment and just say how grateful I am for this congregation. Uh, I probably only know about half, if, if not even that, of what went on this week in preparation for this storm. Uh, phone calls, texts, emails of people wanting to know how they can help and what they could do to help and then helping. And it is a, it is a testimony to our Savior because there's, there's no amount of human goodness that would continually reflect what this body reflects. And so I am grateful to Christ for what he's done in all of our lives and for the, how that testimony has been reflected in the work of this congregation this week in preparing for the storm. So thank you for all the different ways that that each of you served. I know that there are probably many things I don't even know about, but I'm grateful for it. As we come to the end of Noah's life, who would have expected, if you were reading the story, especially in Scripture, for it to end on such a sour note? Right? I mean, Noah, he was a righteous man. It's what we've read. Genesis 6 reported that this was why he was set aside, was because God said, Noah, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. We kind of look up to Noah as we looked through the endurance that he and his family endured, not only the storm, but the year and ten days that they spent in the ark. We kind of looked up to him. Genesis 7-1, when God said to go into the ark, he said, Go, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Uh, But this is a good reminder. 
as with all biblical characters, that we don't forget that they're human. And if you're human, you're a sinner. Uh, And you sin. And so we come to the end here and we see this account of Noah's sin. And it would be easy for us just to skip on by it. There's a bit of discomfort in talking about sin, but anytime nakedness is involved, there's a little more discomfort, isn't there? Just keep on going. Let's skip by it. But it's important that we don't because there's some things for us to learn here. I want to mention some big picture things that I just want us to keep in mind as we go through. I want to mention these up front and then we'll move our way through the text. The first thing, and I think this is probably obvious to all of us, is that we can never grow relaxed towards sin. Doesn't matter how old we are, doesn't matter how many years we've walked with the Lord, doesn't matter if we've, you know, done whatever. There's no spiritual plateau that any of us reach where the coast is just easy riding. I used to think that way, and I used to long to get to that plateau because I looked at older people who seemed to make faith look easy, and I thought, I can't wait till it's easy. And then as I've gotten older, I've realized I was misunderstanding people. Uh, I was the one that didn't understand. You think of Moses in his later years, toward the end of his life, sinned in anger, didn't he? And what did God say? You're not going to go in the promised land. As a result, there was a consequence. David was in his 50s when he sinned with Bathsheba. Solomon was in his later years when he sinned as well. And so it is important to remember that there is no easy going when it comes to sin. It's true because our hearts, as Jeremiah says, are, are, are wicked. It, we constantly deceive ourselves. It's true because the world around us is in opposition to the ways of God. And it's true that the devil seeks to, you know, he's roaming around like a lion, roaring, seeking whom he can devour. And so it's always and only by the power and grace of God that we can stand against sin and resist it. It's only by walking with God according to His Word and by His Spirit that we can resist the fiery darts of the evil one. And that image of fiery darts, if you've ever really struggled in a temptation, you you understand why that imagery is uh, such a good description. Because there are times where You don't feel like there's any reason you should be tempted, and yet temptation is coming at you. You're thinking, where is this coming from? I'm not in a dangerous place. I've not subjected myself to things uh, that, that would tempt me, and yet it comes at you. And so we are called to draw near to God that He would draw near to us and stand in His grace and power. Second thing I want us to remember is that sin does not remove us from the covenant bonds with which God's children are held. And this is so important for us to remember that sin does not break the covenant bond by which we are held. When we talk about nothing can separate us from the love of God, that includes our own sin. And this is hard for us to imagine because in human relationships, sin can separate us from someone else's love. And maybe you've had that experience in life where you've done something and it's severed a relationship and there's nothing you've been able to do to repair that. There's nothing you can do to repair your relationship with God either. It's only because of what Christ has done. And because of who Christ is, that work is so worthy that there's nothing that can do that can break that work that Christ has done on your behalf. God did not discard Noah. He didn't walk away from him. We see that if you remember... 
Peter, when he denied Jesus, right? He said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. What did he do? A few hours later, three times he denied him. Did Jesus discard Peter? No. He restored him. And he used Peter greatly in the building of his church. And so Noah also becomes this mouthpiece of God, a prophet, as it were, uh, in this last will and testament almost that it's recorded here in Scripture, that we have to remember Noah was righteous by faith before sin, this, this sin, because there were other sins that aren't recorded, and after sin as well. Same is true for us. We're righteous only by faith in Christ before and after any sin. And this brings us to a third point that may not be so obvious, but that is this account points to the divine inspiration of Scripture. Had the Bible been written merely by the will of any human, these sins would have been omitted. These things would have been left out. If you were writing a story about heroes, then you would have left out all the sordid stories. James Boyce writes, Had the Bible been a human production, had it been written by uninspired historians, the defects of its leading characters would have been ignored, or if recorded at all, an attempt at extenuation would have been made. But instead... The scriptures contain these realistic pictures of the lives of sinners who have been saved by grace. And we can connect with that, can't we? We can identify with that. And so as we approach this account of Noah, we need to take heed lest we fall. We need to be warned by Noah's sin. Scripture tells us over and over again to be on guard. Paul instructed Timothy as he, as, he, as he was finishing that letter, 1 Timothy, to, to be on guard. He says, keep a close watch of yourself and on the teaching to be prepared. At the end of 1 Corinthians, we see the same thing in chapter 16. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. We know that Satan is a vandal and he is bent. He, he knows he's defeated and so he acts like a vandal and he wants to wreck as much as he can. Just flip over chairs and spray paint walls and break windows to, in an attempt to shipwreck our faith. That's how he functions. And so as we think of the enemies that present itself, including our own heart, our own heart is it's, we're our own worst enemies sometimes. As we think of Satan, as we think of the world, uh, we need to consider the consequences of sin as a lesson for us. You see, talking about the consequences of sin isn't legalism. I mean, you could do it in a legalistic way. Like I could get up here and, and, and wag my finger and tell you all the horrible things that could happen if you sin and, and, and cause you just to, to be afraid of the consequences, but that doesn't change your heart, does it? Um, the evidence of that is all the secret things that we did growing up that our parents didn't know about, right? We were afraid of things, doing things in front of them, but we certainly... Maybe it was just me, because you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. I, you know, I, I did some things that my parents didn't know about until a little later in life when it, I was safe, you know, and I could share with them um, uh, what I had done. So it's not legalistic then to talk about the consequences of sin, though, when we understand that there are real consequences of sin, and they ought to warn us. We're wise when we learn from our own sins and from the sins of others. Unlike Ham who gloated and made fun of his father's sins, the sins of others ought to humble and break our hearts. And so the moment someone else's shame, someone else's sin, leads us to (laughs) snicker, 
even if it's just within our hearts, and we all know what this feeling is like, because again, we can go back to our childhood and, and we just learn how to better mask it, right? We just don't snicker out loud. But we're tempted to do that, to look down our noses at someone else's shame. The moment that we're tempted in that way, we need to repent of that. Because the sin of others ought to break our hearts. It ought to cause us both to mourn and be warned that there but by the grace of God go I. And so let's remember those things as we look now at this account, this final account of Noah. There's a bit of an introduction in verses 18 and 19. And we know, as we've looked already through the book of Genesis, it's almost like Moses was putting together some snapshots of the beginnings. That's what Genesis means. And so it's almost like books within a book. And each time we get to a genealogy, it's, that's where we see the transition into another part of the story. So we're approaching another genealogy in chapter 10, and this is a bit of an introduction to it. And his point here is that the people of the whole earth were dispersed from this line, from Noah and his sons, is what he's saying here in verse nine or 19. rather. The flood, in other words, really happened. All human life was eradicated. This really was a reset on creation. And so the thoughts of there being this not being a global flood, it being regional and there were people elsewhere and so forth, I think we have to be really careful not to go down that road because if we look back to Eden, God made some promises, didn't He? He made a promise through the line of the woman and a promise of the seed of the serpent. And those two lines would carry on. And here we see this line carry on in Shem, the line of promise. This is where the Redeemer would come. And in Ham, the line of the serpent. And so it's important that we remember that the flood really happened. This really was a reset because it was through this line, through the line of Shem, that the, the, the promise, the Redeemer would come. And yet it's also important to remember that the gospel transcends genealogies. We can all thank God that it's not limited to one people group, to one ethnicity, to one nation, because most of us in here are Gentiles. And so in looking forward, that's something we can all be thankful for, that just because you're born into the wrong line doesn't exclude you from salvation. And we see this in the New Testament, don't we? Remember when we were in Colossians? Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. But was it new to the New Testament? No, we see it in the Old Testament too. Where was Jonah sent to preach? God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And what kind of town was Nineveh? It was a Gentile city. So God had a heart for the nations all the way back. He told, he told the Israelites, you're to be a light to the nations. That was his message. As we look back through the genealogy of Jesus, we see people like Tamar, Gentile, Rahab, Gentile, and guess what else? Canaanite. Who were, who were the Canaanites? The sons of Ham. So here's Rahab in the line of Canaan, Ruth, Bathsheba, all in the line of promise. In other words, no one is excluded from the call to gospel faith because of their ethnicity, race, or nation of origin. So don't ever go there because the text simply doesn't support it. God's amazing plan of redemption will reach its climax where we see in Revelation 7-9, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and 
and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So God's plan of redemption to all nations is being set up. It's already right here. There's seeds of that promise right here in this, in this descent, that from which all people would come, there, there would be hope to all nations. There wasn't just going to be one exclusive people by, by birth, but actually it was going to be by God's choice, and it would be spiritual. God's plan of redemption continues to move forward, carrying on through the line of Noah and his sons. And then in verse 20, we get to the narrative that recounts Noah's sin. This is a really brief, if, you know, when, when, you, when you read it, it goes really fast. It's brief. It's compressed uh, amount of time. Some, some time has to pass for all of this to happen. For example, uh, you think of how long it t- takes to, to grow grapes, uh, to create a vineyard, um, to, to even more time to make wine. And so this, this, when this happened was sometime in this later 250 years, or 350 years that he lived after the flood, 349 if you count one off of the flood. The verb that's translated began means to begin something new, and so scholars believe that Noah was the first to both grow grapes as a farmer as well as to make wine. And I couldn't help but think, of when we were in Cyprus, uh, one of the places that I would take people when they would come and vi- visit was the Cyprus Wine Museum. And it was near some other historic stuff, so it was convenient to take people to, and it was my kind of museum. It was very informative, but it was short. So you could go through it without you know, like lasting all day long. Well, one of the things that whoever did the tour, one of the things they always pointed out was, we invented wine. They would tell you this. And we have DNA evidence in this piece of pottery that scientists, that only the wine is the only thing in the world that produces, scientists, forgive me for using all the wrong terms, but anyway, they had figured out that this one molecule cell, whatever, was, that, that was it. It was the oldest piece of pottery, so therefore they created wine. And they wanted you to know that because there were all these wine paths that you could go and travel all over the island. And of course, when you finished in the museum, there was a shop, and they wanted you to shop. So they told you all of these things, and I think they really believed it. Uh, but wine goes back a little further, doesn't it? It goes back all the way, at least, to Noah, who grew grapes and made wine. Wine is mentioned a number of times in Scripture, many different places. It's used in the Passover. It's used in the Lord's Supper. It is said to gladden the heart to bring cheer to the face in passages like Psalm 104.15. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. So we see these, these kind of happy pictures. And yet Scripture also warns us about alcohol in passages like Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It's not forbidden, but the warning is given, isn't it? Whoever is led astray... By it is not wise. What is forbidden in Scripture? Well, Ephesians 5.18, for example, forbids getting drunk. We are not to be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And so while we're free to enjoy all good things from God with thanksgiving, we ought, ought to be cautious. And this principle doesn't just apply to alcohol. This principle applies to so many different things that we are to be wise. We need to know ourselves. Some of us have no problem. Other people, some of us may have a problem. And so we need to know ourselves. And one of the ways we can know ourselves is through relationships. 
because sometimes other people need to point things out for us, right? And so we have relationships with other people, and so sometimes it's listening to others, people who care about us and love us. And so let me say this, that if you keep stumbling in an area, then you may need to stay away from that thing. And that's true if it's wine that leads to drunkenness, or chocolate that leads to gluttony, or TV shows that lead to lust, or, I'm going to hit some nerves here, news networks that lead to anger and hatred or fear, right? So I I covered all the bases there. There's more we could add, but did all of us feel a little bit of a prick at some point, right? We all can resonate with this. I remember when I was a youth pastor, another buddy, youth pastor friend of mine, uh, we, we did a lot talking to kids about purity. And one of the things that he used to say is teenagers always want to know, you know, how, how far is too far? And basically where I can go and it not be too far. And he used to say, if you were going to fall off the edge of the cliff, do you want to go and figure out how close you can get before you fall off? Stay away from the edge of the cliff. Just get back. That's wisdom. Right? It's not legalism. It's not saying. So if you know something is going to set you up for a fall and you look back in your history and you say, I keep tripping up on this thing, this key thing that I have the freedom to do possibly keeps leading me into sin where I'm crossing the line, where I'm facing the shame of sin and, and I need to confess and repent, then maybe we need to step. That's wisdom. Step away from it. Guard your heart and protect yourself. Noah sinned by Drunkenness. That was his sin here. And then in turn, it led to a consequence of him being disrobed in his tent. It's another reason to be wise. Sin has consequences, and some consequences are more severe than others. Consequences are natural outworkings or natural uh, results of an action. So there are consequences. We face consequences every day in our lives. We understand most of these. Some of them still do surprise us. Uh, but most of the time, we, we get that there are consequences. And you have, you know, even in science, we think of consequences like Newton's laws of, you know, action, reaction, all those things that we learned in eighth grade science. If you think of driving too fast and you, there's a possibility if you do that, you could get a ticket, right? That's, that's a consequence. And in that case, the ticket is punitive. It's punishment. It's designed by the civil authority to basically deter you from speeding again. That if a ticket is painful enough and causes you to have to pay a fine and your insurance to go up, that you'll slow down and you won't speed. But if you speed, you may also have an accident. That's a consequence, not necessarily a punishment. You could even get hurt or you could hurt someone else. You could die, or someone else could die. All of these things are consequences of driving too fast, but not all are punishments. As Christians, we recognize that Jesus has taken all of the punishment, right? He dealt with it on the cross so that we are no longer under God's wrath. But we don't escape earthly and human consequences. Those are still there. If you go into traffic court with your speeding ticket and try and tell the judge that Jesus has taken all of your punishment, I don't think that's going to stand in a court of law. You're still going to have to pay the fine. In more seriousness, though, when you're angry and you speak harshly to a loved one, you damage the relationship. The damage is the consequence, and work has to be done 
to restore it. When you lie or try to cover something up, you break trust with others in relationships. You could not only damage a relationship, you could lose your job, you could get kicked off the team, or you may simply be ignored because you lied. The boy who cried wolf, right? We have that uh, child's tale. The consequence in this case can sometimes take a long time to overcome because of that trust that's broken. The sin of drunkenness, however, is even more complicated because you lose control over and you do things that you may not normally do and possibly that you even don't remember. You could get angry and sin against others. You could tell lies. You could betray secrets or even worse. And this is where we find Noah. He's passed out, unclothed in his tent. He has sinned and there are consequences to that sin. Now, Noah's accountable for his sin. But notice how his failings get magnified when Ham comes along and chooses to sin as well. And this is why sin is so dangerous, because it has not only a snowball effect in our own lives, but it can often trip up other people and cause other people to sin in ways that we may not even know about and cause more disaster. Ham sees his father. The word that's used here for saw means to look at searchingly, and so most scholars agree this wasn't just an accidental thing where he glanced and said, whoa, you didn't need to see that. Uh, but he, he, or if he did, he turned back and looked again. He looked with intent. It was voyeurism. Uh, one commentator writes, voyeurism in general violates another's dignity and robs the one of his or her instinctive desire for privacy and propriety. It's a form of domination. But Ham goes further. He goes further in his own sin by taking the news to his brothers. And, and, and not in like a tattletale kind of way, but in a way that uh, it was, was glib about his father's shame. You know, we're, we're told, we read it this morning, honor your father and mother. This was in no way honoring his father by doing this. We should never proclaim someone's shame to others in such a way. So this covers the areas of gossip, uh, beyond the, the, the command to honor our parents. I mean, this would cover anybody that we don't treat someone else this way. It violates the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You would not want to be treated that way. And then we see the reaction of Ham's brothers, Shem and Japheth. And it, and it shows us that they knew better because of the way they acted, right? They had been taught. They understood this wasn't just some uh, sin of ignorance, Shem and Japheth make every effort then not to look at their father. They take the garment. It doesn't really come out in the ESV, but the way it's written in Hebrew, the garment that Ham brought them was his dad's garment. So they took the same garment and they walked backwards over their shoulders where they can't see him and they cover Noah up. And in their doing so, they demonstrate what we read in 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. These boys honored their dad. They loved their dad and they covered his shame. And they imitated their heavenly father who, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did he do? He made coverings for them, right? He covered their, they, they felt naked for the first time because of sin. They felt shame and he covered their shame. And this is a picture of Christ's atoning work on our behalf and that he covers our shame and paying the price for our sins. And so Noah awakes in verse 25 and he proceeds to pronounce these curses and blessings on his sons according to their actions. And in both of these cases, Noah is speaking prophetically. 
So he is speaking, uh, he, uh, he's empowered by God's Spirit to speak in this way. There's uh, a, a voice that he's been given by God to speak something that's going to come true. And if you think of Jonah, we talked about him early, earlier being to, sent to the Gentile city. What did Jonah originally do? Right? He went the other way. Did God discard him? No. He continued to use him. He brought him to Nineveh. And he used him as his mouthpiece. And so Noah is likewise given the same opportunity. In effect, this is the last act that we have of Noah that's recorded in Scripture. So this serves as kind of a last will and testament. And the first thing he does is pronounce a curse on the son of Ham. He pronounces the curse on Canaan. So there's really not a clear answer as to why he does this. I mean, we read this morning that, that God visits the iniquities of a man upon his, you know, to the third and fourth generation on his sons. Um, we look ahead in Scripture and we see how Canaan was going to live, that he would actually do far more wicked things than Ham did. Uh, Ham was the youngest son of Noah. Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. The people of God are warned over and over not to follow in the paths of the Canaanites in Scripture. You remember this from all the Old Testament stories. They were to stay away. The Canaanites were indeed following in the line of the serpent. Uh, that was their, their, uh, the path that they chose to follow. And so while we don't know why God, pronounced this, God through Noah pronounces this curse on Canaan, those are some of the factors that, that are a part of that. And just as he pronounces the curse on Ham's line, Noah pronounces blessings on the line of Shem and Japheth. And it's worth noting what the, the, the blessing actually sounds like. It's actually, um, in, if you look in verse 26, he says, Not blessed be Shem, but blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So he's saying, blessed be Yahweh, the Elohim, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So he's directing the blessing to God. And in essence, what he is saying is, God, Yahweh, is Shem's God. He belongs to him. Like his father, he was walking with God. And Canaan would be a servant to Shem. Japheth is also wrapped into the blessing of Shem, showing that he is also going to receive. This is the prophetic part of looking forward to the Gentiles getting some of these blessings, right? And in this, we see the sovereign grace of God in that Shem is named the line of promise, that, 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 that God does things according to his own will. Why Shem? Why not Japheth? Why did Ham end up this way? And yet we look and Abraham was chosen over Nahor, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. It is God who sovereignly elects for his own glory. And we as the, as the pots don't get the, the liberty to, to ask why of the potter. He makes... Vessels for His wrath and vessels for His mercy. And yet we must remember that God, even though He works through nations and families, His salvation and election is toward individuals. We've talked about this already, but we think of Rahab, who was a Gentile and specifically a Canaanite. And what does Hebrews 11 say about her? Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. See, Rahab's faith led her to follow God's leading in welcoming those spies. 
So Rahab is saved, saved by faith, even as a Gentile Canaanite, the same way that you and I are. A woman in the line of Ham receives the amazing grace of God. And we too, as Gentiles, are also recipients of this same grace. Ephesians 2 verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's us. Saved in spite of our lineage, our ethnicity, the nation in which we're born, we're saved because God has chosen us. We who have been brought near by the blood of Christ then are to walk in the ways of faith and obedience, not in the ways of Ham as he walked in disobedience. Although there were consequences for Noah's sin, his grievous actions did not thwart God's plan. God didn't throw his hands up in the air and say, oh, no, what am I going to do now? Because God knew that the whole of Scripture is this story of his redemption. He's already taken our sin into account. So this is not going to thwart his plan. In fact, his announcements following the sin points to the Gentiles coming from Japheth and Ham being brought into the family of God. Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. All the promises of God have found their answer in His Son, given as the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is faithful and He never changes. May we look to Him in faith, not only for the salvation that awaits us in the end, but may we look to Him in faith as we resist the flaming darts of Satan who seeks to destroy us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Father, as we confront our own sin and the consequences of our own sin, we know that apart from Christ we are without hope. We have no hope to stand before you without Christ's redeeming work. And yet, we also have no hope to resist sin without your ongoing work of sanctification in our lives, without the Spirit's presence and power, without reading and understanding and applying your word, all of the means of grace that you've given to us, Lord, we're helpless without it. And so I pray that we would look, as we consider the consequences of sin, that we would look at this not with a a, a list of do's and don'ts or turn this into some kind of legalistic act, but that we would be so moved out of gratefulness for the great salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus so that we desire to please you, that we desire to live wisely, that we desire not to see how close we can get to the edge of the cliff, but that we, we turn and we get a far, as far away from those things that lead us astray and we live in ways that bring you great glory and pleasure. And I pray that as you do this work in our lives that we will enjoy the freedom of living uh, in you without the consequences of sin as we would be living apart from you. Lord, that you would show us your preservation and your abundant grace and mercy as you grow us and sanctify us. Lord, may we never get lax or comfortable, 
May we never think that there's some plateau, but may we continue to fight sin, to stand firmly in your promises and truth and in the power of your spirit against sin, that we may resist the devil and all of his woes against us. Lord, give us strength to do this. For your glory and your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.